0: Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. idolat idolater, idolater. Idolater, idolater. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. idolater. Those who run after idols will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their name on my lips. Idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, nor is there a breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Turn, turn away, turn away
1: Has there ever been something you've seen so many times that the novelty of it has worn off to the point that you hardly even notice it anymore? It's sort of like driving to a destination and never noticing the details along the side of the road. It seems anything that's repeated often enough stops carrying the impact it originally had. In today's episode, we'll address the well-known account of the time Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman at the well in Samaria and asked her for a drink, but this time, we'll notice a detail in the conversation that often slips right past us. My name is Michael Land, and I want to welcome you to the podcast. Today, we'll begin a series of studies with a message we're calling Hammering Gold, Building Idols in Our Own Image. Today, we hope to open your eyes to help you see things a little differently, and maybe to draw your attention to something that you might have been overlooking. Grab your Bible and turn to the book of John, chapter 4, and let the Lord challenge your heart as we point out some life-changing truths. Welcome to Season 3 of Landline, Study the Word with Michael. Turn with me, if you will, to John, chapter 4. I want to read a very familiar passage today and kind of draw your attention to a single sentence spoken by Jesus that often escapes our thoughts. It's always fascinated me, and I've spent a lot of time pondering it. It almost seems out of place in the conversation, so it seems most speakers just kind of move right past it on their way to the overarching point that they're trying to make. John chapter 4. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. The woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship.'" Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know.'" We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Father, the message that I'm going to speak today is not a common one. And therefore, I need, I feel I need your extra guidance. I need your wisdom as I present to the people this message that you've given me. I pray for clarity of thought. I pray for clarity of speech. I pray that I will say things in a way that will penetrate the hearts and minds of the people who are listening. And I pray that you will lead this message to the people who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. When I say the words, the woman at the well, immediately your mind goes to the high points of this story. You've heard it preached and taught so many times, you're probably trying to decide which of the three or four major points I'm going to focus on this time. Isn't it funny how our minds do that? It seems each preacher takes one of a handful of themes to build a message on, and we almost feel we could preach right alongside them. We can still hit all the main points with them. I've heard preachers focus on the fact that Jesus crossed cultural lines to minister to someone the other Jews would not have even lowered themselves to speak to. That theme is certainly there as the woman at the well brings it up by saying, "How is it that you a Jew ask for a drink from me a woman of Samaria?" It's a historical fact that the Jews and the Samaritans were were at odds and the disdain they showed one another sometimes even led to violence. I've heard preachers focus on the fact that this woman had been married five times and that she was now living with someone who was not her husband, how the prophetic knowledge of Jesus opened her eyes to the reality of who he is and how he demonstrated his love for her, even in her sin. That theme is definitely there as well, as even in her sinful condition, Jesus went out of his way to focus his time and attention on her. I've heard preachers focus on the fact that her relationship status would have caused her to be looked down upon by the other women in the community, for even the Samaritans would have seen her choices as shameful and would have shunned her. According to those teachers, she would have come to the well when no one else was around in order to avoid the snide remarks and judgmental looks of the other women who drew water there. I've heard countless preachers use this as a text to launch into lessons on the importance of having a pure heart and a clear focus so that you can worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There is validity in all these lessons. There are many directions you can go with this passage. As the Holy Spirit packed a lot of depth and meaning into the words, but today... I want to focus on one particular sentence as a launching pad for a train of thought that I believe is vital to our growth in Christ. Jesus said, are you ready for it? You worship what you do not know. We've briefly discussed this sentence in past sermons as we focused on spending time in scripture and getting to know who God is, how he represents himself, and what his word says about his attributes. I encourage you to go back and listen to the recordings of those sermons. Today, though, I want to revisit this sentence in a different way, with a different thought in mind. There was a great rift between the Samaritans and the Israelites. The differences in their expressions of their faith were seemingly insurmountable. They claimed to believe in the same God. They both claimed to serve the one true God, yet there was a difference. The Samaritans followed traditions that were outside of what God had prescribed in Scripture, and Jesus said, You worship what you do not know. Think about that for a moment. How many people do you know like that? They claim to be Christians. They truly believe that they belong to Christ. They might listen to the same music you do. They can quote some notable preachers or authors and maybe even a few scripture passages. They proudly tell you that they're the children of God, yet there is something in their view that ultimately leads them away from the truth of scripture. It seems all too common these days. It's still popular to call yourself a Christian. We want to belong to a group that brings us comfort. We want to feel as though we are children of the God of the universe. We certainly love to tout our freedom in Christ. We love to loudly sing songs about our joy, about our freedom, and about our importance to God. Just turn on Christian Radio. We do have great freedom in Christ. We are important to God, as important as my children are to me, and our relationships to Christ certainly bring great joy. However, is the Christ about whom we are singing the very same Christ we find in Scripture? Let me ask you that again. Is the Christ about whom you are singing the very same Christ we find in Scripture? You see, Jesus stands before us and says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heavens above or the earth below or the waters beneath. And though most of us have never carved an idol out of gold or out of wood Is it possible that we fashioned alternate forms of God that are more in line with our way of thinking than with the God of the scriptures? Is it possible that the God we follow is more of a reflection of our own tastes, desires, and pride than he is a revelation of the one true God? As I wrote my notes, I had some modern Christian music playing softly in the background. Now, because of the way my mind works, I frequently get distracted by a singer's stylistic choices, by the way he forms his words, the way the lyrics are put together, the repetition of certain lines or phrases. I think about how I gravitate toward music and singers who have styles that match my tastes. I have some modern Christian music that I play all the time in the background. Now, because of the way my mind works, I frequently get distracted by a singer's stylistic choices, by the way the lyrics are put together, by the repetition of certain lines or phrases. I think about how I gravitate toward music and singers who have styles that match my tastes. Now, my tastes are affected by my experiences, by my traumas, by my desires, and by my moods. The range of my musical taste is fairly broad, but my Choice in music is nearly always in tune with those factors. In short, I gravitate to music that speaks to how I feel or what I like. I celebrate the things that appeal to me and I reject the things that do not. I sing along with the songs that touch my emotions and I ignore those that don't. There's nothing wrong with having tastes. With each personality comes a variety of different preferences. Just like food preferences. I have four kids, and I have learned that food preferences are as individual as a fingerprint. Things that appeal to one person will often be uninteresting to another. Our interests, our experiences, our moods, these all play a major factor in shaping our stylistic tastes. We often surround ourselves with music that speaks to our taste. This is, in large part, natural, and it's good. It can be argued that dwelling too much in what is familiar and comfortable can often lead to a lack of desire for growth or for expansion of our horizons or for a simplistic homogenization of our experience. Those, though, are topics for a different day. The simple fact is that we tend to embrace what is comfortable and familiar while avoiding things that challenge us or are unfamiliar. The unfamiliar requires something from us. It forces us to adjust and to adapt. The unfamiliar requires more effort than the familiar. We do the same thing with preachers and teachers. Our personalities seem to just click with certain speakers, certain authors, certain styles of delivery. There are preachers and teachers who, when you mention them, the first thing people say about them is how funny they are or how exuberant they are. They are as they preach. Some people enjoy a more emotionally charged presentation while others prefer a more collegial, academic approach to teaching. There are some preachers that I listen to on a daily basis and it's like sitting in a university classroom. The language is expanded. The the tone is more erudite. And then there are those whom I listen to that are far more boisterous and energetic. They they all have powerful messages, but they're presented in different ways, different strokes for different folks, right? None of this is a major problem. It's good that different styles appeal to different people. I was raised in an old fashioned country church environment. My dad preached fiery messages that often led to people shouting in praise or weeping at the altar. We'd go to camp meeting services where I remember powerful messages and mighty moves of God out under a large tent under a string of incandescent light bulbs, calling out to God as we knelt at old wooden altars on a dirt floor while the preacher energetically walked among us, laying hands on each of us and praying loudly. How I sometimes long for those days. Some of the most life-changing moments I've experienced, though, were in a completely different environment. A minister stood quietly behind a podium and delivered well-polished, intellectually challenging presentations and divided the Word of God in ways I'd never before considered. What power can be tapped when people's minds engage with the intricacies of the richness of God's Word? Stylistic differences are wonderful and can be tools used by the Holy Spirit to reach people in unique ways. There are people who learn more in a quiet, gentle setting and those who thrive in an environment where the preacher shouts and sweats and loudly declares the word of God. I've been involved in both and have grown in both environments. In many situations, style is merely a statement of preference. In many situations, this preference is completely acceptable, so long as preferences can be met without causing a deficiency in our understanding of truth. The problem arises, though, when our tastes take priority over the integrity of truth. We live in a time when countless people have embraced teachings that are found nowhere in Scripture. As a culture, we've chosen to flow like water in the easiest possible path. We follow the path of least resistance. Anything that challenges our current understanding, our sense of self-importance, or our set of desires and aspirations becomes an obstacle we either avoid or attack. We've stopped desiring growth, but would rather attack anything that is outside of our comfort zone. Anything that draws us toward a larger understanding of who God is tends to be resisted while we focus on who we are. We love to talk about our spiritual gifts, about our love languages, about our spiritual authority. We cast aside those who teach on biblical holiness or submission or integrity. We'd rather opt for terms like authenticity, which more often than not translates into, I know I'm flawed and I'm content to remain that way. Jesus loves me just as I am, so I have no intention to change. In many cases, even though someone teaches something we find questionable in light of scripture will often overlook those errors because we enjoy the atmosphere the companionship or the style of worship of a particular church there are speakers who speak aberrant doctrines yet because they have a band who comes from their church that is well produced and has music we enjoy we will overlook those bad teachings In many cases, even when someone teaches something we find questionable in light of Scripture, we'll often overlook those errors because we enjoy the atmosphere, the companionship, or the style of music of a particular church. Over time, we become desensitized to the errors and they begin to seem normal to us. We no longer bristle at the things about which our spirit raises an alarm. In other words, our conscience becomes seared And we become numbed to false teachings. We surround ourselves with the people we enjoy, the music we enjoy, doing the things we enjoy, avoiding the hard work of studying the truth if it challenges us, and our whole idea of Christianity becomes a safe space where we are never urged to grow. Our sermons become cheerleading sessions reminding us of how vitally important we are to the plan of God and how favored, loved, and entitled to the bountiful blessings of God we are. Our theology parrots our own preferences and voices our own opinions. Soon we unknowingly serve a God who looks, acts, and sounds just like us. Our God condemns those who do things differently while turning a blind eye to those areas in which we fall short of scriptural truth. In essence, we find ourselves serving a God who looks remarkably like us. But this God who looks like us is not the God of the Bible. You see, we were created by God to bear His image, not the other way around. Yet from the beginning of time, Satan has been twisting the word of God to deny and deceive, obscuring our view of the truth and leading us into error. In Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. To every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. You see, God gave man dominion over so much. God gave man all the food he could ever eat, He gave man dominion over the animals, He had provided everything. But do you notice what He didn't give man in this passage? He didn't grant him the right to set the rules. He didn't give man the right to determine how God was to be worshipped. He didn't say, now, I'll stand back and let you determine your own destiny, or now that I've given you all this, you are to see yourselves as being of primary importance even though mankind was God's greatest creation and even though mankind was created in the image of God and in his likeness, mankind was not granted the position of God. Mankind was not granted the authority of God. Mankind was not equal to God. This may sound like a pretty basic statement. So basic as to seem unnecessary even. However, from man's earliest adventures, we've routinely stepped outside the bounds of the position we were created to fill. God created the world and all that was in it, and he created man to live on the earth and to take dominion over it. He blessed him with everything he could possibly need to live a life of peace, of prosperity, and of communion with God. Yet at every turn, man has demonstrated his desire to step outside the bounds and to be the ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. I come from a long line of stubborn people. When told what we can or can't do, a very common phrase in my family's history has been, (laughs) watch me. I remember we were driving in Southern California one time when I was a child and my dad missed a turn and started looking over his left shoulder I believe it was on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. And there was a lot of traffic. It was one night. He was going to meet some preachers for dinner or for refreshments after church. And he starts looking over his left shoulder. My mom says, You can't turn around here. He said, Watch me. And he flipped a U turn and went to his destination. I'll never forget that. We do what we want. (laughs) I'm trying to break that cycle in my children, by the way. I have four children at home. For the most part, they get along great. They play together, express love for one another, and they treat each other with respect overall. Occasionally, though, one of them will develop a habit of ordering the others around. Stop tapping your feet. Stop singing. Stop blinking your eyes so much. Don't play with that. Don't look at me. When this happens, their mother and I have to remind them by saying, You need to remember who you are and who you aren't. Are you the parent? No, you aren't. You don't get to boss the others around because you haven't been given that role. As followers of Christ, we often fall into similar habits. We surround ourselves with people who agree with us. We begin to use the same catchphrases. We begin to build a subculture of individuals who think alike, talk alike, who enjoy the same things. We become passionate about the same causes. We sing the same songs. We get our coffee at the same places. And interestingly, we begin to look a lot alike. And when someone doesn't quite fit in, when they have different tastes, when they come from a different background, or worse yet, when they disagree with something we've always believed, We may not confront them, but we will certainly do everything in our power to make them uncomfortable enough to leave, right? After all, God agrees with us, right? We tend to judge what is right or wrong by whether it agrees with us. We gauge what doctrines we agree with by how they make us feel, what we've always been taught, or by whether it challenges us to change our behaviors, After all, instructions in the word of God are for other people, right? But rarely do we go to scripture with our hearts and minds open and actually seek our answers there. We go to the Bible to prove our point, not to align ourselves with Jesus. We treat our Bible, if we refer to it at all, like a lawyer at a law library looking for something to support his client's claim rather than going to the Word of God, seeking how we can realign our thinking to match God's will. God said that we could have no other gods before Him. But it seems like we like ourselves better. We surround ourselves with people who agree with our politics, because all Christians agree with our politics, right? I don't see how anyone can call themselves a Christian and vote with that party. We argue and we debate, we insult, we slur, because after all, God agrees with us, right? I hear a hammer ringing. When I was a kid, it was in the height of the days of the hippie. You see, we of the church had a certain look. It was a godly look. Our preachers wore three-piece suits. Our choirs wore robes. Our ladies wore long dresses, no makeup, and had long hair up in a tight bun. Our men wore shirts and ties and had short, neatly trimmed hair and absolutely no facial hair. But outside the doors of the church were the other people. They didn't look like us. They didn't dress like us. Their music was unlike anything we'd ever heard, and Wow, the things they could do with a Hammond B3 organ were otherworldly. It was us against them. So when one young man came to our church in his bell-bottom jeans and a white T-shirt, brushed his long hair out of his tear-filled eyes and came to the altar to give his life to the very Jesus my father had just preached about, and the first thing that happened was an old deacon's wife took his face in her hands, looked him dead in the eyes, and said, now you need to get your hair cut. That young man never darkened the door of a church again, as far as I know. But after all, God dresses like us, right? You see, there are countless ways that we fashion our God's We've allowed ourselves to become so infatuated with our own tastes, our own desires, and our own ambitions that anything that doesn't fit our preconceived notions must be wrong, and anything that agrees with our way of thinking must be God's will, right? After all, God's word should feel right. It should sit well in our soul. It should be comfortable. It shouldn't challenge us, offend us, or draw our attention to our own sins, right? I hear a hammer ringing. We're building idols, my friends. And those idols are beginning to look just like us. Second Timothy three, one through five says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, When we read this passage, we read it from an us versus them vantage point. We, we, we picture all those people out there who were all of these things. We simply ignore the fact that many of these descriptions point directly to our own attitudes, our own behaviors, and our own positions. We vote for people who clearly and blatantly demonstrate many of these traits, but because they outwardly embrace some of the same things we hold dear, we blind ourselves to the faults they have, and we call them God's person for the job. If only God looks like us. We go online and we argue and we debate about anything and everything, insulting others and condemning them because of their differing opinions, calling them names and insulting their intelligence. All the while we are blind to the fact that we are just simply being proud, arrogant, abusive, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, often slanderous, showing no self-control, brutal, reckless, and often swollen with conceit. But it doesn't matter because God understands we're fighting a battle online, right? Surely God turns a blind eye to our sin, doesn't he? And is it really sin if we're simply responding to someone who's wrong? Is that that? hammer again? Is the God I'm describing the God of the Bible? The God of the Holy Bible is holy. He's resolute. He's unchanging. He doesn't condone wickedness, whether it's in someone who claims to follow him or not. God is he is all holy. God is all righteous. God does not ignore the fact that we gossip about others. He does not condone our prejudices. He does not share the humor we find in ungodly things. He has commanded us to be different. He said, "Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them," said the Lord, "and touch no unclean thing." The part of us that thinks God is okay with our sin is a part of us that worships a false god. Throw away that hammer. Tear down the altar you've built to false gods. Break up that idol you've built to your own image. Follow the one true God. Purify your temple. Purify your heart. It's time we do some rethinking. Pride is a wicked master. And it's pride that causes us to fashion our belief in a God who looks, acts, and thinks just like we do. I've heard it said that pride is the root of all sin. I agree. And how much more prideful could a person be than to believe that God approves of them in all their opinions, emotions, and actions? I implore you, friend, set aside your pride and read the word of God with fresh eyes and with an open heart. Stop reading the Bible in soundbites and memes that reinforce our preconceived notions. Open the Bible with a curious mind. Dig into it. What is God trying to say to me rather than, see, this proves I'm right. (laughs) As I was growing up, I would often hear sermons in church and I would think in my mind, wow, I hope so-and-so takes note of that statement or I hope this person hears this or man, I wish that person had been here today because they really needed this message. The older I get and the more I've studied the Word of God, when I hear things that are challenging, I think, I'm glad I was here to hear that because that's gonna help me change. I need to change. I dare say that there are countless who truly believe they are disciples of Jesus. But when the time comes, he's likely going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. But but I did this in your name, Lord. I did this in your name. I argued with that guy online in your name. I performed a great song in front of the whole church in your name. I defended your honor in your name. I dressed the right way in your name. I declared glory and victory over sickness in your name. I shouted and danced in your name. I learned all the right words in your name. I And he'll simply raise his hand and point to the exit. I never knew you because we've built idols in our own image. My friend, if your God looks like you, it isn't the God of the Bible. God's word will always challenge your way of thinking. As I've been speaking about this, I imagine myself standing in a in a yard full of garden gnomes, all of these little figures standing around. And as I look closely at them, They look just like me. And I'm a sad, pathetic little man in a sad, pathetic little yard with sad, pathetic little gods. And none of them is the God of the Bible. I had a thought a while back. I shared it with my friend, Michael Jackson, pastor of a church in Sacramento. I was talking about homeschooling and I, I was talking about how children learn differently and how the toughest thing about being an effective teacher is not teaching people what to think. That's easy. Memorize this four plus four equals eight. This is the date that the revolutionary war began. This is the name of this person in history. That's the easy part having people memorize the things we want them to think. The hardest part about teaching effectively is not teaching people what to think. It's teaching people how to think. And God has convicted me of the way I've preached and taught all my life because I tend to convey facts and say, here are the facts, follow them. And my goal as we begin season three of Landline, Study the Word with Michael, is to share with you not just the facts, but to teach you rather how to think. To teach you how to shape your worldview in a way that will lead you closer to Christ. I think preachers, we fall into the the, the path of teaching people what to think. And we fail in the area of teaching people how to think. You see, you don't need me to teach you the facts of the Bible. They're there. You might need me to point you to them because there's a lot in there and we tend to get distracted by the world. But the difference between an effective Discipler of people is not that he teaches people necessarily just the facts, but he teaches them how to process them, how to think we've got a we've got a generation of people in this country who have been taught to memorize certain facts and they don't know how to be a good citizen. We have generations of people who have who can quote biblical facts, but don't know how to process them in a way that helps them to grow, to be more Christ-like. Those garden gnomes that I mentioned a moment ago that look just like me, they are idols, my friend, because we have spent so much time and effort and energy in our lives building idols that look just like us. God said, let us make man in our own image, but we spend our lives making idols in our own image. And it's blasphemous. Father, this has been an uncomfortable message to teach, but you called me to teach it. This has been a difficult topic to address, but you gave it to me to address, and you shared it with me to share with others, so therefore, that's what I've done. Lord, let your words sink in to the hearts and the minds of the people who are listening, and let it challenge the status quo of our thought processes. Let us begin to question the things that we have held as firm in our lives. Challenge our prejudices. Challenge our predisposed notions. Cause us to look to your word for education, not merely for reinforcement. Cause us to open your word because your word is our food. It is our nourishment. It isn't merely a rule book. It isn't merely something we point to to correct others, but it is what you have given us as a beautiful gift to teach us how to build our lives on you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the Word. Father, I pray that you will challenge us this week, that you will cause us to follow hard after you, not after gods that look like us. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things for your glory. Amen.